G'day, G's and P's. Welcome to the Little Wireless Program. Elon Musk permitting, I've just sent out a tweet saying Donald will bounce back. He is the human trampoline. I hope that isn't the case. And we've got a very distinguished guest list to tell us what the hell is going on. Uh, one, of course, is uh, Bruce Shapiro with his regular Shapiroette, Bruce being contributing editor at The Nation magazine and exec director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia. On this occasion, we're also pleased to be joined by David A. Graham. David's an award-winning uh, staff writer for The Atlantic, where he covers politics and national affairs. And thank you for joining us, Lauren Gambino, the political correspondent for The Guardian in the US. Bruce, you gave us the initial post-mortem last week. Can you please bring the ancient broadcaster up to speed with the latest results? Uh, well, first of all, let us point out that on that human trampoline, the springs are sagging a little bit. Uh, and also, you know, my my son-in-law is a neurosurgeon, and he would point out that a huge number of traumatic brain injuries are caused <laughs> by people who think they can just keep bouncing back. Um, look, we are at this astonishing, and perhaps it shouldn't be astonishing moment, but nonetheless are, in which the Democratic Party has emerged from the midterms outperforming all expectations, most people's expectations, and outperforming any midterm out-of-power party in recent memory, holding on to the Senate, likely, still most likely to lose the House, though it's possible they'll hold on to it by a squeaker, by a seat or two. Um, we still don't know about the House because um, there are what, I think a dozen districts still left being counted. Within that, uh, within the Republicans who thought they were going to be charging to victory, poor Kevin McCarthy is now, as the New York Times put it in a headline this afternoon, which I just loved, scrounging for support in his <laughs> once presumptive uh, turn as speaker. Um, if he does indeed become speaker, he will be in a very uncomfortable position because if the Republicans hold the House at all, it will be by the thinnest of margins and every single member of the House and in particular every member of the Trump caucus, the Freedom Caucus, the MAGA caucus will be demanding things in order to vote for him as speaker. It's going to be a very uncomfortable position to be in. And, and the reality is that the Democrats are now charging ahead with a kind of momentum that most of their national leadership did not expect. Now, have. just to clarify, there's a Georgia runoff on the 6th of December, and that'll determine the Senate margin, whether it remains 50-50 with Kamala Harris holding the deciding vote. Well, indeed. Now, what is interesting in this is that the Democrats now have, thanks to Nevada uh, have their have their fifty vote plus Kamala Harris majority. If Raphael Warnock wins his Senate his full Senate term, as I think is most likely, if you look at the history of voting patterns in Georgia, um, not only this will this kind of further cement the Democratic majority, it will reduce the power of Senator Joe Manchin, uh, whom you and I have talked about so much, the Democrat. Well, three cheers for that. Well, he, who's been in, in, in Joe Biden's way on several issues. It, it 
changes the dynamic in the Senate. Why does this matter? Well, if look, if the Republican Party, in fact, gets control of the House, the Democratic Senate is the firewall. It prevents President Biden from needing to veto a bunch of legislation. It means none of the um, none of his signature legislation will be stripped by Republican majorities if the, you know, the Republicans had held the Senate. Um, and it also means, quite consequentially, that his judicial nominees, and in particular if there are opportunity Supreme Court nominees, are likely to get through. And this changes radically the dynamic that was expected in these last two years of Joe Biden's first term, if indeed he decides to run again. Are any of the lunar right of the Republican Party screaming the midterms have been stolen? One of the interesting elements of the results when you drill down on them in the last week is that the most fervent election deniers who were running for offices like Secretary of State all, all over the country, um, the people we were all really worried about delegitimizing future elections, they lost to a person uh, in, in every single battleground state. Not one election denier was elected to statewide um, electoral regulating office. And that's, that says something about where the voting public was this time. And in addition, some of the Trump-endorsed candidates who lost, who ran on resentment and ran on um, not recognizing the 2020 results, like Doug Mastrano in Pennsylvania, um, have ultimately, including Mastrano today, ultimately conceded. Um, the, it's like the air has gone out of the balloon of election denial. Um, and that is something we're going to be figuring out for a long time. What was it in this moment that caused that to collapse? Was it a, the court injunctions in Arizona that prevented vigilante election deniers from intimidating voters? Was it simply the scale of the loss? Was it Republicans themselves uh, seeing an opportunity to distance themselves, the first opportunity they've had to distance themselves from Donald Trump. It'll take us a while to unpack this. The familiar voice of Bruce Shapiro and now a new voice for the program, uh, a guardian at the gate in Lauren Gambino. Lauren, if the Republicans do take control of the House, how difficult will this make life for Joe and the Democrats? I think uh, I... I, I think overall, very they they want to make it as difficult as possible. But I I almost feel like I would have been better placed to answer this before the election. Now that things are so tight and the margins are going to be so narrow, I think that there is a lot of introspection taking place. And I don't want to get you know too far ahead of myself. It is still a Republican Party dominated by Trump, but they are starting to ask themselves, you know whether that's the route they want to take. And um, they're looking at 2024. And I think there are a lot of very big picture questions. And that may, uh, you know, that may call into question some of their goals. If You know, do you want to proceed with impeachment proceedings against uh, Biden officials or, you know, possibly even Biden himself, as some of the most extreme members of the Republican conference have called for? Um However, that being said, these members will now have incredible power because you know, the, the smaller the margin, uh, the more powerful each 
member becomes, as you know, Democrats themselves learned <laughs> with such narrow margins in the House and the Senate. Um, so I think you'll have this real tension, and we're actually seeing it just you know, playing out as we speak because um, there's a big uh, um, meeting of the Republican uh, in the Republicans in the House, and, and there's a lot of tension over you know the direction of the House Republican Conference, the leadership, um, and I think we're going to see that play out. So I'm not entirely sure, but they have a lot of power to uh, just launch a ton of investigations and make well, it very there's difficult. there's a possibility, as you say, of a, an attempt to uh, impeach Biden, but there'll also be the hunt. On for Hunter. Let's now go to <laughs> David Graham at The Atlantic. David, you've written a, a piece for The Atlantic looking at one particular house race that you see as emblematic of what happened right around the country. Please tell me about it. Yeah, so this is the third district in Washington state, and it's a district that's like a sort of classic, a little bit Republican district. It has gone for Republicans in the presidential election every year since 2008. It's had a Republican representative, and the Republican representative is a woman named Jamie Herrera Butler, who's a moderate but a solid Republican. Um, she's a Hispanic woman, um, so sort of the the newer, uh, more diverse Republican Party that they're trying to build. Um, but she also made the uh, political technical mistake, perhaps, of voting to impeach Trump uh, in 2021, uh, which made her a target of uh, of the former president. Um, so. You know, Democrats have been targeting the seat for years, thinking that it was a good pickup place for them and that they could uh, they could win this district because of the sort of changing demographics. They kept pouring money into it, having no success. Uh, but this year, after Trump backed a primary challenge to Jamie Herrera Butler, she lost uh, and a very MAGA candidate named Joe Kent uh, was uh, selected. Who's a you know, he, he subscribes to election denial. He has had he's networked with a lot of white supremacists. Um, and in a shock result, I mean, you know, 538 had this election as a 98 to 2 Republican uh, victory. Uh, he lost the election. Um, he's projected to be the loser. And, and so Democrats are taking this seat. And I think this really just, you know, it symbolizes the way that Republicans have used purity tests and, and used fidelity to Trump as the be all and end all uh, to their own um, to their own political detriment. As and you that, say, think, is, as is you say in your piece, race. this is a, a self inflicted wound of great magnitude. Back to you, Lauren. We also have a good sense of just how important women and young people were, don't we? What did the exit polls show um, on the abortion issue? They show that young people overwhelmingly were prioritizing abortion when they came out to vote. And we saw in some areas a really high turnout among young people. And that's always hard to do in a midterm. And especially with uh, young people just tend to vote uh, at lower rates than, than other age groups. Um, and so obviously um, abortion being on the ballot in so many states and being just very front of mind and, and having governor's races, attorney general's races really animated by the issue, uh, really brought young people out. It also brought women out. We saw, uh, even before the election, we saw women registering to vote um, at really high rates post the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so, you know, I think taken together, we have a lot of good data points that suggest abortion actually was a very important issue in this election. Uh, maybe not everywhere, but certainly in states like Michigan, where Democrats I mean, almost had a clean sweep up and down the ballot um, in a very battleground purple state. Uh, so it was a very good night for Democrats. And the governor there, she ran her reelection campaign 
it was really centered on abortion. There was this looming uh, threat of a pre-World War II era uh, abortion ban, and they also had a referendum on their ballot, and you could really tell that served Democrats very well. Back to you briefly, Bruce. We, uh, we've often discussed the way elections in your country and certainly in ours, elections have almost become auctions as massive amounts were spent on them. Was this a big money election? This was the biggest money midterm in history um, and we still don't know the total number of billions that were spent. That said, it's really striking how many of those millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, were spent on messaging around what turned out to not be the core issues in this campaign. All the Republican money went towards stoking fear of crime and to pumping up crime, and crime in the exit polling was a second-tier issue. All of the Republican money um, went to um, pushing Republican messages on the economy, and a lot of Democratic money did too. And all of that too, while it was the economy is always an important issue, really did in much of the country take a back seat to reproductive rights, which we'd seen something similar like in 1992 when Bill Clinton was elected, and to fear of democracy, the post-January 6th, post-insurrection, post-Trump fear for the future of American democracy, which the president and former President Obama um, and candidates like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania really leaned into in the last couple of weeks, that turned out to be the center of gravity in this election rather than the themes that both parties uh, poured a huge amount of money into advertising for. David, uh, this has been a nail-biter for Australia almost as much as the US. We lived in dread of the outcome. But it is encouraging, as Bruce says, to see that Americans did care more about democracy than the pundits had anticipated. Yeah, I think Bruce is exactly right. And, you know, when Joe Biden gave these speeches about democracy, he was kind of widely mocked or ignored. You had a lot of sort of savvy pundits saying this isn't what voters care about or, or it, you know, it's making democracy into a partisan issue in a way that will backfire on Democrats. Uh, and in fact, you know, if you look at the results, I think there's a lot of evidence that this is exactly what voters cared about. They voted against election deniers. Uh, they voted for Joe Biden. They voted for Democrats even when they didn't approve of Joe Biden, even when they were sour on the economy, um, because this was something that was really important to them. And, and they realized that it is it is important, more important to, to the average voter than uh, than I think the press gave credit to uh, to them. David, you write in The Atlantic, the existence of this anti-MAGA coalition is essential to understanding not only this election, but also 2014. Uh, well, 2024, I think. You know, we, we've seen this uh, Oh, sorry, coalition. 2024, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We, we saw them come out in 2018 uh, to, to give Democrats back the majority. Uh, we saw them come out in 2020, even when they voted for Republican congressional candidates to give Joe Biden the White House. We saw them come out this year. And I think um, you know anybody analyzing the next election has to um, has to reckon with the fact that there is this group of voters who don't just follow the the you know the kind of metrics we've been taught to expect, whether that's employment rate or or presidential approval. They're focused on these issues. One governor that won re-election was uh, Tony Evers in Wisconsin, and he said in his victory speech that it turns out boring wins. So, Bruce, are we seeing Americans leaning away from chaos and yearning uh. <laughs> for stability? 
Well, I think yearning for stability, perhaps, uh, and rejecting chaos. I'm not sure that it means that boring wins. I, I actually think that if you look at Pennsylvania, if you look at you know, more Healy elected to governor in Massachusetts, if you look at Mark Kelly's reelection in, in Arizona, state after state, what you saw this year actually was a hunger for a politics that's about principle. Now, people are perfectly happy with boring, but I think what we saw in the exit polls was a desire for politics that's about something and about something more than simply the manipulation of voters' fears of the moment or desperations of the moment. Um, this wholesale rejection of Trumpism wasn't just a rejection of, 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 of chaos and rage. It was a rejection of manipulation and a rejection of violence in American politics, and a, you know, which we hope endures, and a rejection of, of anti-democratic, intrusive government in the form of abortion, anti-democratic suppression of votes. All of that really was on the ballot, and as Joe Biden was saying in those final weeks, and as Obama was saying, democracy is on the ballot. This is LNL on RN, and we're looking at the midterms and on to 2024, and my holy trinity of commentators is uh, Bruce Shapiro, David Graham, and Lauren Gambino. Let's turn to Trump, David, who's now been noisily dumped by uh, Rupert. As far as you know, he's still planning to go ahead and announce his candidacy on uh, Tuesday night there. But it's fair to say these results have had, uh, well, a negative effect on Trump. I think so. And I think one reason we see him rushing to announce now is that he uh, is nervous about momentum flowing away from him. He sees, uh, you know, Murdoch's empire sort of dumping on him. He knows that there is a debate within Republicans about what's going on. And he's also worried about simply, I think, in an ego sense, attention going to other people. Uh, and he wants to seize back uh, any kind of momentum and, and seize the spotlight. And I think that is, uh, that's one reason you see him rushing to announce, uh, supposedly uh, on Tuesday. We'll see. There's no great enthusiasm for Trump's candidacy, except I suspect on the side of the Democrats, uh, David. They must be hoping that he is who they'll be fighting. I think that's exactly right. And I think there are a lot of voters who remain very much in his camp. And, you know, it was the voters who sort of overruled the Republican establishment in 2016. Um, and it's them who, who have that power. And, and I think the question for them is whether they've simply become fatigued by the sort of Trump circus and uh, and are smitten with a new contender, somebody like a Ron DeSantis, um, or if their uh, loyalty to him uh, remains strong and enough of them. I must say, uh, Bruce Shapiro, I was quite impressed with uh, the Donald's uh, pun about uh, Ron de Sanctimonious. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's look at the sanctimonious Ron after his massive win for Florida. Is he the now the, you know, the, the front runner to replace the Donald? Well, he's certainly the Republican politician in the strongest position. And I say that not just because he himself was reelected by such a large margin, but because he, um, over the course of his term as governor, he uh, worked with the legislature to re-gerrymander the voting districts in Florida so that Democrats uh, effectively lost uh, 
two seats in the House that had previously been Democratic seats. Um, if if Republicans are able to take the House of Representatives, as seems likely, but we still don't know, it will be because of Ron DeSantis's political leadership, his operational leadership of the Florida Republican Party. So, you know, he he is looking good at this moment. And of course, Florida is a big bucket of electoral votes. That said, there's a lot of road ahead. And there are also plenty of candidates, starting with Mike Pence, who is rolling out his own memoir on the same day that former President Trump is supposed I'm to make sorry, his announcement. I'm sorry, I hadn't heard about this. I thought Mike Pence had just sort of gone into retirement. Oh, it's a, he's, it's, it's a retirement that he hopes will be padded by book royalties and further padded by votes. Um, his, his memoir is due out this week and he's already making the rounds of the interview circuit talking about how angry he was that then President Trump dumped on him on January 6th, um, how inappropriately he felt the president behaved. Um, I don't think... Well, Pence, Pence has one natural constituency in the Republican Party, which is the evangelical right, which currently is very much still in bed with uh, Donald Trump. If the Donald fades, Pence is where their energy would go. But in terms of kind of national political spotlight, um, DeSantis is the man with momentum at the moment. All of us are guilty of terrible puns. Here's me with my trampoline. Rupert Murdoch's New York Post carried a front page uh, hailing Trump's rival as the future. Back to you, Lauren. Uh, so here's Joe celebrating a remarkable result in the midterms. He's also about to celebrate his 80th birthday. Do you anticipate he'll stick around and have another go? That's what he says. I mean, he says he fully intends to run, though he adds the caveat all the time that he's a believer in fate and it will be um, up to a family discussion that he hopes to have in the coming weeks. Um, but he's given every indication that he plans to run. Uh, I think, you know, it's it'll be interesting because some of these exit polls have suggested that there is a wide swath of Americans who do not want to see him uh stand for re-election as many as two-thirds and he was asked about that in his press conference after the midterms and he just sort of said watch me uh <laughs> so you can tell that he's really yeah he's just he's he's riding high on the midterm results and you know it's kind of hard i think you know just to tell to tell a president uh, to stand down after he sees himself as having a pretty successful first half of his term. So I think it'll be hard. Lawrence, if you, if you were a family member, if you were in the <laughs> Biden, the Biden camp, what would you, what would you advise him? <laughs> uh, there's definitely reasons I'm, I'm on the other end of things. Um, I, I mean, he would certainly, I think his age is going to become even more of a factor than it was in his first uh, campaign. And it was a factor then, you know, if he's running up against someone like Trump, well, he does have a good track record there, but it might not be Trump. It could be Ron DeSantis, and I believe he's in his mid-40s, and that, that could be a real issue for Biden. So I think, you know, but I, but I also think the Democrats, I'm not sure that they really want to um, have a bloody primary and, and go through this all again. Back to you, David Graham. One main concern in the round of to the election, which we've talked about in the past, was voter suppression and gerrymandering. Do we know what effect this really had in the midterms? 
You know, I, in terms of gerrymandering, I think there's a good argument that it's the difference between Democrats keeping the the House and losing it. If you look at uh, Florida, where Ron DeSantis rammed through um, a map very favorable to Republicans, uh, or you look at New York, where Democrats kind of overplayed their hand and got slapped down by courts. So there, I think it matters a lot. In terms of voter suppression and the kind of intimidation and, and meddling with, with elections that I think a lot of us are really worried about, things went so far surprisingly well. And there's still time for lawsuits and, and for things to be messy in Arizona, for example, where Kerry Lake hasn't yet uh, conceded and, and where the voting isn't finished. But I think on that front, things went very smoothly. And it's a it's a really encouraging sign for democracy that we didn't see more of the, the messier things that I had really feared. Bruce, we've seen punditry and polls fail quite spectacularly. Well, in the UK with Brexit and in Australia with recent elections. How do the, the pollsters and the pundits get out of this one? Well, I think in a way that pollsters and pundits ought to be reflecting not just on this year, but the combination of 2016, the year that Trump was elected, and this year, um, in both cases, there was, I think, a failure of polling science, uh, let alone of pundit arrogance, um, to connect with the complexity, to respect the complexity of American voters' arguments with themselves and with their families. Um, you know, it, Smart pollsters will tell you that a poll is just a snapshot in time, and, and that's always true. But polls are also based on embedded assumptions about the electorate, embedded assumptions about political theories. It's the economy, stupid, you know, has been Bill Clinton, the, the famous Clinton line going back to 1992, um, tends to show up as, a, as the way polls are organized around that question. Um, I think pollsters and pundits need to do a more careful job of reckoning with the complexity of everyday life for um, Americans at a time of huge inequality and a time of, of all kinds of national crises, and recognizing that polls are only one way of getting at that. I agree with what you say about pundits, but there's an honorable series of of exceptions, and I've just been talking to them. So uh, thank you very much for coming on. Pundit Bruce Shapiro, contributing editor at The Nation, uh, David A. Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Lauren Gambino, political correspondent for The Guardian in the US. LNL on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.